Or would you say something? In the beginning, God so, created the heavens and the earth. So you, you just memorized that. You're not even having to read that. Yeah. That's good. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. It is my honor to be sitting across this table for my friend, Josh Jackson. How are you, Josh? Doing wonderful. Great to be here. I'm, I'm making you work extra because you just finished preaching here in Austin, and now we're recording a podcast. Like, this is a lot of work, and I apologize <laughs> for putting this on you, but I know you can do this. You, you got this. Hey, I'm a seven. I'm always interested in doing extra stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> right up my alley. And we need to uh, introduce your wife, who's sitting uh, across the room here on the couch. So across from me on the couch is my lovely wife, Tina, 12 years. Uh, go Texas for her. Yep. Uh, she goes with me when I go places. She's from Midland. She's from that's Midland. That's West Texas. Like, that's real Texas. That's right real there. Texas. She's not messing around. So she knows <laughs> things. So she'll give us a thumbs up or thumbs down if we need to redo something. Um, but uh, let, let me tell you what I, I wanted to do. We had a conversation maybe two months ago in L.A. We were at Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. And you, me, and Big Brother Fate were talking yep. after lunch. And we were talking about the differences of white church and black church. And it stuck with me. And... So I think a lot of times people think about like racial reconciliation and they think, well, like we're all going to get together. We're going to have like a, you know, a cookout. We'll do a potluck and white people are not going to bring the potato salad, but we're all going to get together (laughs) and everything's going to be great. And the more I've learned, the more I've listened, the more I realized that there are like substantial differences in the way that like churches are like structured in the way that we experience school and prepare people for ministry. And we talked about something that stayed with me uh, specifically about your experience going off to college. Do you remember this conversation at I all? I do. I didn't give you any warning because I'm a seven. I don't want to like mess things up, but you're seven too, so you're good with this. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's kind of give the backstory on you grew up Kansas. Yep, Wichita, w- Kansas. Wichita, Kansas. And so your church, it was a Church of Christ church. Yes, yep. What was the name of it? So it's Chisholm Trail, predominantly black church, uh, north of Wichita area. Um, great community, great people, great people of faith. My dad... Served on there on the staff as a youth minister mm-hmm. and associate minister at the same time. And so when I graduated high school, well, even before that, when I was looking at colleges, um, kind of the understanding was the church that I was a part of uh, was, <clears throat> uh, was planted by a guy named Bowser. So if you know black church history, uh, Bowser and Marshall Keeble were contemporaries. And so he's kind of the tradition that my church kind of came out of. And so the understanding was, if you're going to a Church of Christ school, obviously you'll go to Southwestern Christian College, mm-hmm. uh, which is in Turrell, Texas. That was, we had a lot of people from our church had gone there, graduated from there. That was just kind of the expectation. Is, isn't that where Fate? Uh-huh. Yeah. Fate had gone to Southwestern, correct? Okay. And so, you know, there have been people who've gone to Southwestern. They went on to go to ACU. Uh, some of them went to MS, uh, SMU. Some of them went to OCU, things like that. But it's kind of like the starting point. You're going to go to, you know, you're going to go to Southwestern. Like, that's a given. And. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the history of Southwestern is that ACU actually helped get it going partly, not partly, but um, this is a place where black students can go? So kind of. So kind of. So going back even further. So before there was Southwestern Christian College, there was NCI, Nashville Christian Institute. Okay. So some things happened uh, back in the 50s, 60s uh, between Lipscomb and Nashville Christian Institute, which was actually run by Marshall Keeble. Okay. Uh, and then when NCI shut down, they reopened, not officially NCI, but a similar school that ended up moving to Terrell, Texas by being opened by G.P. Bowser, okay. who opened Southwestern. Uh, and at the time, Southwestern and ACU kind of had a little rift. Uh, 
what the understanding was, because ACU at the time wasn't allowing black students. Yeah. They didn't start allowing graduate level black students until 63, I think. And then the following year, 64 undergrad. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there the history of uh, universities weren't going to be supported nationally if they weren't uh, integrated? Late 60s, though, wasn't it? Like, correct. But this is a couple years before that. Correct. Okay. So, yeah, so that history existed. And so people in my congregation, many of them remember that history of being at these schools where ACU wasn't welcoming them. They weren't friendly. And so kind of going. So for me to say that I'm going to ACU for some of them was like, "Mm." and, you know, we had our own Christian newspaper coming out of Southwestern, which was the Christian Echo at the time. Uh, So things like the Christian Chronicle other newspapers that still came out for predominantly large churches of Christ were seen as quote unquote liberal, whatever that means for a church of Christ. Yeah. But I remember specifically people saying, you know, don't go down to AC and let those white people change you. Yeah. Like that, that was the understanding. That was the actual, that was the rhetoric. And for good reason for them, they had grown up at an experience where, you know, the white church for them wasn't always, we play nice and we play fair. Mm-hmm. Right. It was, you guys kind of have that over there and stay over there and we do what we do over here. And we will actually give you resources to stay over there. Like you said, I mean, there's even churches in Abilene that, well, the predominantly black church, that's probably the oldest North Tenton Treadway was started if I'm not mistaken by either university or uh, it was, I think it was the university church of Christ that started Treadway specifically when black students started coming to ACU, they didn't want them with the predominantly white church. So they, wow gave them a building, money, and a plot of land. And the first elders over Treadway were the white elders who were at university. And that's kind of how that system started. So that history was, you know, there are people who were still alive who remember, who lived that. Yeah, yeah. And some of them were a part of my congregation or their grandparents remember that. And so that that, was real. The the history goes back. I mean, when I was at ACU a couple years before you, the son of, I think, uh, he said, I don't know the historicity of this, but he said that uh, his dad was like the first uh, black student at ACU. And that was his dad. So like, this is not way, way back in the past. Like this is, th- these people are still alive who mm-hmm. lived and experienced this. And so two things, one, when, when you talked about like being sent, we're, we're going to get back to letting those white people mess with your head. Cause I, I really want to unpack that. Cause when you talked about it two months ago, it was really revelatory for me. So I want my listeners to hear that. But first, when they talked about you going off to school at ACU, you and I had different experiences about what it means to go off to school. When I went off to school, it was like, oh, they're going to say a prayer for you and like, you know, give you some swag that fits your new school. Like that was going off to school for me. That, that's not what you experienced when they sent you off to school. Like there was like everyone had some skin in the game for this. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, and I think this has a lot to do with the communal understanding and a lot of predominantly black cultures and even communities of color. Specifically, there is this. We do this together. There's this embodiment of my any achievement, any success that I have is communal success. It's not just me. So me going to ACU was a part of Chisholm Trail going to Abilene. Mm -hmm. And so you represent us and we represent you. So that was that understanding that, you know, whatever you go down there and do not only reflects you and your family, but it reflects us as a community. Yeah. And so. You know, don't go down there and let those white people change you or indoctrinate you or teach you certain things, you know. And obviously, one of the things that was had to be kind of fleshed out was, you know, there's a separation between school and theology in some case that needs to be, you know, kind of elevated in the conversation. But because of Southwestern being 
a hub for both the predominantly black church and as an academic institution, those things were pretty merged together in a lot of ways. You had a lot of preachers that went, came out of Southwestern. They went there to Southwestern to be trained in ministry and they went out. ACU, yeah, they were training ministers and obviously I'm a product of that because I'm in ministry now, mm -hmm. but that's not all ACU does, right? It's a huge, it's a university that has a lot of colleges and a lot of disciplines that people study. And so, and at that time I wasn't even a ministry major. Like, so I was biology pre-med, but the understanding was that's a school that's going to teach you theology, which Bible classes are required, but you know, they're going to do some things to you theologically and indoctrinate you in church wise so that you're different and you might not see us as your people anymore. And that was kind of the fear or at least the concern. Which is substantial. Like, and when they're sending you, like, they literally are raising money for you. Like, you, you talked mm -hmm. about, uh, like, fish fries and other things. Yeah. To, where everyone literally is helping you pay for tuition. Yeah, to help me be successful. Yeah. Which is uh, a whole different understanding of, like, communal participation and communal buy-in. Like, we are literally financially sending you off to be educated at a very uh, in a very real way that we're afraid that the people that we're paying to teach you are going to teach you to not want to come back and be a part of our church. Correct. Which is terrifying. Oh, yeah. Very much so. I, I never understood that to that degree of, wait a minute, we're literally going to financially support you to go to uh, be educated in a way that they're going to teach you things that are going to make you not want to come back and be a part of our church. Like, that's... Um, that's... Um, that's very unnerving to me. Yeah. I mean, so not only is that fear there, like you said, because they're, they do have skin in the game, their financial resources, their mm -hmm. prayer time. I mean, even my entire time at ACU, I mean, it wasn't unusual for me to go to my mailbox in the campus center, have cards from members at church. When I went home for Christmas or something and they see me at church, they would give me money or how's this going? Give me a gas card. And I mean, that was, that was just normal because you are a representation of us. Even though you're there, you're still a product of this church. You're still a product of Chisholm Trail. And we love you and we want the best for you. And so we're supporting you, even though you're not here on every Sunday because you can't be. But you're out there doing what matters. At least that was the mentality. And that's how they showed it. And so, yeah, I can see them. This You're an investment for us in a good way mm -hmm. that we hope ultimately blesses the kingdom. But we don't want you to be taken away that you no longer see us as family. We no longer see us as the community that nurtures you and that cares for you. Yeah. C could you flesh out more about when they're saying white people mess with your head or change your head? Are, are there some specific things that uh, you would see as like substantially different from the church you grew up in compared to what is typically being taught at like an ACU or a Lipscomb? Uh, yeah. So I think one of the specifics, so, and I'm generalizing a lot here when I say this, uh, and I didn't realize this at first. Obviously, there are some things that happened in a worship service when I got to ACU at certain places. And not that doesn't scan the gambit. So you go to so my first week at ACU, uh, the first Sunday, we go to North Tension Treadway, right? Treadway looks very similar to the congregation I grew up in. You know, Dr. Taylor was still there. And then Dr. Edward Robinson came in, traditional single song leader. I mean, they still had the sacred selection books. So it was like I just went from one large church to a smaller church that very much functions like what I grew up in. Then while I was there, you know, well, actually my introduction to chapel, you see the praise team up front. Mm -hmm. So that was completely new to me. All right. Then I go visit some other churches. So I go to Southern Hills, you go to Highland mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, so Highland, you see the ladies passing communion and contribution down the aisles, which I'll admit my first Sunday, like seeing this, it's like, okay, this is all kind of wrong theologically for me because that's what I've been taught. Like, 
Like mm-hmm. it was so different. And from my friends, my peers who were white, who were with me those Sundays, there's like, it wasn't, it was normal for them, at least in some sense, they weren't having the same, mm-hmm. you know, mental, emotional, theological crisis that I was having in these, in these settings. And so it took me some understanding, some reading, some conversations with some of my black professors who became great mentors over time to kind of adapt to certain things and even have a growing understanding of scripture. But that then creates automatically some distance between my original community now, mm-hmm. because some of the things that there's no way they would have tolerated and they saw, and I mean, they, and not to say this as if they're negative, it's not, it was just that now I was in a context where my theological understandings were expanding, mm-hmm. which now puts me in a place where not everybody at church I grew up in would actually see these things as okay. Yeah. And so once I start, even if I'm not, going out championing all these things that women can do in church and worship service, even if I'm not doing that, the fact that I'm okay with certain things personally puts me at odds in some cases. Yeah, your your presence there is a, a vote of affirmation, exactly. even if you're not <clears throat> vocalizing it. Uh, I had this conversation uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, early in the podcast, uh, with a uh, former professor at Duke named Christina Cleveland, who wrote okay. a book called uh, Disunity in Christ. And uh, as, a, uh, as a womanist uh, theologian, uh, I remember having this question first, like, well, in my experience, in my context, uh, you have some communities of faith, which are predominantly black, that are not as receptive, like you're describing, to greater female participation in worship service. Uh, but then you also have uh, white churches that are more inclusive of women in service, are all, also advocating strongly um, for racial justice, racial reconciliation. And the two conversations seem to be at an impasse, because to have racial conversations means that you have to address the women conversation, which in, in some ways you have like, I, I'm for one thing, which disqualifies me for being against the other thing. And I remember asking her, like, well, what do you do in that situation? And I think she was just kind of uh, unable to conceptualize this reality. Um, I know that's an experience that since then I've had conversations with other people uh, who said uh, it's tough to reconcile if you have if you want groups together, but they have different ideological understandings about secondary issues, then how do you have community together? Uh, as you've thought about that in ways that I haven't even ever uh, ever imagined, like how, how do you try to pull those two things together? Because you're saying that y- you see this as something that you're comfortable with, uh, with greater female participation in worship service, but you also understand that you want um, the black church to be part of the white church and the white church to be part of the black church in a greater sense of community. Um, but those things seem to be like a dividing line that prevents that. Does it make sense? It does. So. So some of these theological issues, like you said, that are primary, and then you got to deal with the secondary aspects of those. So I think something that has come, that's been a lot more obvious, uh, as I was going through ACU, and then when I went off to Emory to a United Methodist-based school, uh, and obviously their background, United Methodist, but our worship in our chapel uh, at Emory, in Candler at least, looks very much like an Episcopal yep. church. So yeah, yeah. That's but what I began to realize is having these conversations with other black students from other denominational traditions, uh, you start realizing that our views of Jesus are, are not the same. Uh, huh. And that that was kind of shocking because it made sense as to why the racial issue and even gender conversations are so challenging because our views of Jesus are very different. Okay. Uh, and even being at churches that are diverse, you can start talking about some of these secondary issues and people will 
they will honestly they will lose it on you over it because they don't realize that what's actually at the core of this is that we we're not necessarily seeing Jesus alike here. And what I mean by that is so I took a class at Candler um, by it was basically looking at church history and kind of like these images of Jesus and these metaphors mm-hmm. that kind of rise up and how artwork over the centuries has played yeah, into yeah, these yeah. metaphors uh, of how we, so what's ever going on in the context, you see these artists painting these works of Jesus. So you look at some of these pictures of Jesus. And so if you're, and I remember our professor kind of talking through this of saying, well, when Israel's in this place, you know, of abandonment, well, the way that they talk about their story Right. You get in the prophets where here we are. How do we sing a new song? They're in this low period. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, those aren't the same songs you see being sung when they cross the Red Sea, when Miriam busts out in song, when Moses mm-hmm. leads a song. And so depending on what's going on in the life cycle, certain songs show up. And so you even look at our song books and hymns and what's written in certain times and you see the songs. So you get some of these songs that are written during the war of World War Two that are a lot more, you know, we got to hold on to things that are, you know, that are actually stable and we need to look at God in the midst of all this term. Well, once the war is over and we're victorious, all hell praise King Jesus yeah. name. Right. And so the artwork in some of these settings looks very similar. Okay. So for predominantly black cultures, and like I said, I'm generalizing in this, but if you see a Jesus in your experience coming out of slavery of a suffering servant versus if you're white and you see what well, we've been victorious in this new land that we've conquered, well, I got a picture of a victorious Jesus and I got a suffering Jesus. So one is a lamb and one is a lion. Yeah, yeah. And so how do you bring the lamb and the lion together, right, which is actually a biblical metaphor, which mm-hmm. you see in Revelation mm-hmm. that God is going to do this. Well, then that's a lot of work. That's a lot harder to do if we're singing songs like One Day We Shall Overcome and you're singing that we've already got to the promised land, mm-hmm. right? So those those understandings of how church service functions if everything is, I just need to make it through this horrible life because it's terrible being black in America and I got to deal with all this suffering and all this pain. And my hope is that one day this will be over and Jesus will redeem me and give me salvation with streets of gold. Mansion robe and a crown sounds great. And you sing it with all you have. Well, if you feel like life is great here in America and you don't have to deal with a lot of, you know, justice issues because you have privilege, well then, I don't see the big deal for why this matters and, so and much. And we almost would criticize that and go, well, you just think Christianity is just this pie-in-the-sky religion that we're just waiting to the afterlife, and then you get the good stuff. And so I even want to like <clears throat> try to rationalize why my view is better than yours, even though I'm not listening to really the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. And, and this is me as a white man saying saying that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I think that that's kind of the—having those conversations, you begin to see that this is what's happening. And so— kind of the work that I've been kind of fortunate enough to be a part of is at least naming why this is so hard because my black context, they're living a certain experience yeah. and you have to validate that whether you agree with it, like it or not, it is their lived experience. They remember when ACU didn't accept them. They remember when these other church of Christ schools weren't allowing them. They remember what it was like having to go through these hard times when schools were segregated and water fountains were segregated. They remember that. And so you're not just going to go tell them, well, let's just all become one church. And they're like, well, who's what, what's, who's going to be in charge of this? Yeah. Because we know what it's like to assimilate. And so right now, I'd rather have this terrible building that's falling apart. At least it's ours and we don't have to ask them for anything. And they mean that. Wow. And then you have white congregations like, well, why don't you guys just come be a part of us? We got more than enough resources at this point. We have enough space for you. And 
for the black congregation, it feels like we're giving up everything to go be a part of you. And if you were to ask that question in reverse and say to a white church, hey, would you guys just let go of everything you have and come join this black church? Never seen that happen. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Right? So it seems easier to do it one way, but it's a lot harder to go the other way. Exactly. And so that's I'm, legitimate part yeah, of this conversation that's, that's challenging. Well, the fate has helped me see that you can't talk about this conversation without talking about money. Oh, like, yeah. White churches have more resources. And so his thing that he, he would, I, I would, I hear him saying right now is like, okay, so black church, white church are going to come together. Well, white church, you're going to give up resources. And are you going to give up the power that the elders have and give it over to the minister, which is more traditionally, uh, uh, the, po- the polity of black churches is typically more, uh, more ownership and authority is given to the, to the preacher. Mm-hmm. And so white churches get real reticent when you have to put that on the table and go, oh, okay, I don't know if I want to give this up. In the same way that there would be reticence from the black church to go, I don't know if I really uh, want to assimilate and just do uh, do white church. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, th- this is kind of part of the, the point of this conversation is like, it's not just, hey, let's have a picnic together and we're going to all bring some food and everything's going to be uh, real neat and having black kids and white kids play together and that's a solution. Like, that's kind of like the the whitewashed Dr. King vision that we want to hold on to and instead of the more like gritty conversation of, wow, like we're going to have to really make some sacrifices to make this work. Oh, yeah. I mean, even at the church like that I've been a part of that are similar, I mean, very diverse for Church to Christ. I mm-hmm. mean, and luckily I'm serving one now that I love. But I mean, in our worship pretty much every Sunday, you're going to get some hymns that have great theology. You're going to get some more contemporary songs. You're going to get some songs that are more spirited from predominantly black churches or a black church experience. But not even that, even the way we sing certain songs that both the groups know. So in predominantly black church, unless you had somebody that was proficient in reading music, we sung songs based on how we heard them or at least how they felt to us. So we have no problem adding to a song, adding runs and cadences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all normal for us. Well, in a predominantly white church where you want to stick to the text and you got to be faithful to the person who wrote this. Well, we don't need you to add anything to it and we don't need you to change anything to mm-hmm. it. So I remember singing like just a little talk with Jesus. And at the end, we were like, and it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. right? And you do that. And it's like, well, that's not in the songbook. <laughs> well, no, but we just felt like doing it. And it sounds great to the point that it becomes normal. Well, you try that at a predominantly white church that's not used to those things. And it's like, uh, no, after this stanza, it's over. And that's the end of the song. You can go back and repeat the chorus or the refrain, but we don't need that extra stuff. Yeah. But for black, that's not extra stuff. Mm-hmm. That's part of who we are. And that's an expression of, of who we are as people. Where if that's not your normative thing, then it's like, well, they're just up there performing now. And so you have to deal with some of these things. It's like, well, is this performance or is this real? And does this matter? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, for this group of people, that matters. Yep. That's not performance. That that spirited part of being able to improvise and to innovate is worshipful for them. Yeah. It might not feel that way to you. You might think that this is performance, but it matters to them. Just as that hymn that really speaks to you might not speak as much to them. Mm-hmm. And so being able to sit down and talk to people who come up to me and be like, I don't know, are we saying that song that's seven words eleven times? Yeah, that's right. Which is a lot yeah. of our contemporary Christian music in some cases, but that's that was normal in a traditional black church because call and response is a part of our tradition. Yeah. So you would start off a song and you would say something and there's a response. Well, if you didn't grow up doing call and response, you're like, this is very repetitive. 
Well, it is. But every time you do it, you take it up a step or you increase the speed or you change some inflections in it. And it's like mm-hmm. it's a whole new song all 11 times. Yeah. Well, if you don't know that, that's, that's the part of it. And that's part of the experience. Then you're like, OK, we sang this enough. Yeah. But there's a group of people over there who are like, that's the best song we sang all day. Yeah. And you're like, that's the worst song we sang today. Why do we have to do that? Yeah. And so I have to sit down and have conversations, which I enjoy doing, of getting people to see our experiences are shaping us. And so I need you to be a little bit open to somebody else's experience in this. Yeah. Our experiences are different. And the way that we read into other people's experience can either be generous or judgmental. And a couple weeks ago, we had uh, part of our services being led by uh, some of our African uh, worship leaders. And so it, it was the point where the song was supposed to be over. And uh, so I get the head nod, like, okay, walk on stage. And so I get on stage, and then uh, these gentlemen who are, I think they're uh, from Rwanda or the Congo, I, I forget which. And uh, then they just, they improvise and they say, we're going to just do this dance. And uh, so they start doing this dance, and I'm already like on the stage. And like, it's like I have the microphone in my hand, and they're like, hey, we're, we're doing this dance now. And I'm like, uh, do I just like run off stage? Do I back up? Do I pretend like I'm supposed to be up here? But the one thing I'm definitely not going to do, I'm not going to pretend like I can dance. And so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but to some they go, well, you're just showing off or you want to dance or you want to do this or you just want to perform like you just said. But others you go, wait a minute, this is an expression of worship that is very foreign to me, but I know it's deeply in, uh, deeply part of the Christian tradition for, oh, yeah. for dancing and worship. Like read, read the Jewish text. It's pretty normal. Um, and so uh, I've learned enough to go, wait a minute, this is a beautiful expression of worship that I don't really understand. I don't have the skill set to do it, but I can respect it and not be judgmental of it, even if it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, specifically because I'm on a stage in front of hundreds of people who are probably, <laughs> a lot of them are laughing at how uncomfortable I am. But that's, You want to just break down the dance loop? Uh, no, I just, uh, <laughs> did you ever watch Hitch with uh, yeah. Will Smith? Left and right, like just that, that's my move right there. I'm just going back and forth. That's it. I, I, I paid attention to that and that's what I do. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't do any more than that. No, but I think what you just named is in that expression, like, so they're looking at it. And I think, so people talk about, you know, black people not being on time, Hispanic groups not being on time. I remember I went to Ghana, West Africa, and we went up north and we had a worship service with some locals there. And you're like, so what time does worship start? And they're like, when we get there. And that that, that was legitimate. That's real. Yeah. Like when what? everybody showed up, then they would start. Yeah. And, you know, that, that doesn't fly. Probably what? churches that i mean you go over five minutes you know and people are already like looking at watches giving you signals yeah. in the back you know but the flip side of that is like i i uh, you met ramjan i did his wedding and um uh some of the people m- might have not uh, appeared until two hours after it was supposed to start and uh, i'm like oh what this is the first time i ever did uh, a wedding for an african person and since then i've come to realize this is part of the culture um but the flip side of that is white people don't make time and space for each other as easily as that. Like Western people are very obsessed with time, whereas other cultures are very obsessed with people and yes. they'll make space and they'll stay longer. And we're not going to rush out of this just because the time is up. And it's very easy to be judgmental and elevate yours as the best one. But instead let's listen and see the values and that we can gain from each other. And that, I, I don't know. I feel like that's far more Christian. Oh, no, I agree. And I think that's what, kind of what we're going to have to lean into to deal. And I think that's why having the race conversations, gender conversations are hard because we're not taught really well to lean into other people's experiences. We're not really taught to validate other people's experiences, but even harder than that is to affirm that this is actually a good thing. Even if I don't understand it, yeah. right? That, that affirmation part of saying, 
you know, I don't really get why we have to sing these songs or why this group decided to dance. That's not a part of my experience. But there's something good about me experiencing them experience that. Yeah. I, I'm benefiting from that. And if my initial understanding is this is wrong, let me shut it down, let me close off, let me disconnect from it, then I miss something that God is doing in the moment. And so part of bringing races together, bringing gender groups together and having these conversations, but even more having these worship experiences where everybody's in some sense, it doesn't get what they want. It causes us to be not just more tolerant, but to be more loving. Yeah. I think if we stay with it long enough, we move from tolerating That's it good. to actually That's loving these word. people. Yeah. I might not love watching you dance on stage, but I love you enough to give you the space and the freedom that that means something to you. And it means something to God for you. That's good. And I yeah. love to watch you express yourself in front of God. Yeah. Even if I don't necessarily personally agree with it or like it. Yeah. And I think that we don't spend enough time and experiences together. So our conversations are just very polarizing. Mm-hmm. It's funny for, um, for some people, the changes of worship are really painful uh, between acapella and instrumental or traditional hymns and contemporary acapella or whatever your, your church setting is, um, those are really difficult. Um, but one of the things I found at Westover is that people are, are far more comfortable to have a song, uh, whether it's from our, our Farsi friends uh, for, who are from Iran or from our African friends in Swahili or Kenyarwandan, uh, because they just love that they're there. They love that the people, they love how much this means to them. And so even though they don't know the words or it's completely uncomfortable for them, uh, just on a very like tactical level, but they love the people so much that it's mm-hmm. far easier to have a substantial change in language and complete style than just a micro change from contemporary to like hymns because they love so much the other people and they want them to have what really blesses them. And I feel like that's really the spirit of worship that, that we all need to have. It's like worship isn't about me getting my preferences. It's about elevating who God is and who is God other than a God who loves ever for God so loved the world, right? right? Like it's yeah. all of us. And so I feel like that puts us in a posture to love in a way that I think is honoring to God. No. And I, so one of the things that it reminds me of my experience in Emory, that that's, that's the outpouring of worship is my, I have this posture now of opening myself up, not only for God to love me, but for me to love my neighbor out of this. Yeah. Because we come together and we get to see what God is doing among all of us. Mm -hmm. And that gives me this desire to love you more. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think if we, in our Western context, we have to be a little bit sensitive that worship is not just all the steps, right? Church of Christ lingo, right? We mm-hmm. The five acts of worship and all that stuff. So hopefully some of us have moved, uh-huh. not necessarily move beyond that, but we see worship is a fuller thing than just doing these five acts. But if we don't, then I can come to worship and do the system and not love you at all. Yeah. And if I do that, then I really didn't worship because I was never engaged by the heart of God to actually love you which is what worship is supposed to produce in us, mm-hmm. which is a heart to love people better, especially the people that I worshiped with, right? This yeah. is what Paul calls the church in, uh, out for. Mm-hmm. Y'all just come show up and y'all do your own thing and everybody eats when they want to. And then you all go home. Nobody cares about any, nobody else loves each other enough to make space for anybody else. Mm-hmm. So this worship really isn't happening because you're not actually doing it to love each other better. You're just going through the act of being and showing up and getting through the steps. Yeah. And, I have to remind myself of that, that every moment in worship is an opportunity to love somebody else better. That's a good word. That's really good. 
That's good. Well, I know we've been talking about time. Uh, you got a flight to catch, and we got lunch to get first. Barbecue. And, and we got to get some barbecue, and your wife has been so patient just sitting over there. I know she's just loving this conversation so much. I can, she loves the podcast. She's a big, long-time listener. I know that. And so what we want to do... Uh, are you cool with it? Can I put your the sermon you just preached at the end of this podcast? Sure. And so we'll do this conversation uh, like the people have just listened to, and then your sermon, which was just brilliant. It was great. So good. Um, Thank you. And uh, it was a great word that I think everyone needs to hear, and I want my listeners uh, to hear that as well. So uh, they're going to hear you preach now. And uh, Josh, it's been just a blast. Thanks for being on the podcast, and uh, thanks for blessing our church with all this stuff. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, man. Uh, I'm very excited for the guest speakers that we've got for the rest of the month of July. Uh, I, I really couldn't be more excited for you guys to meet uh, who's going to be here uh, the following couple weeks along with today. And uh, so it is my honor. I'm going to invite uh, my friend Josh Jackson to join me on stage. Uh, Josh, let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman right here. Uh, Josh went to ACU a few years after me. We don't need to say how many because that makes me sound old. Uh, but I've known about this guy for years. And two years ago, we got on that committee for ACU. Yeah. And uh, I think we fixed the lectureship for ACU. Uh, yeah, I, I think we were successful. Prayers. Prayers, prayers. okay. Uh, so we've gotten to know each other the last two years or so. And uh, one of the things you got to know about Josh is he went to ACU. After he graduated in 2010, I just said it, uh, he came down to Austin for a year because he was about to go to med school at Baylor and then decided he wanted to make more money. And so he decided to become a preacher instead. <laughs> And so he went, uh, did grad school at Emory in Atlanta, which is another reminder that he is definitely way smarter than me. Uh, he's, he's hopped around, been in Jacksonville and Atlanta, North Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, now he serves outside of, or East Antioch, which is outside of Nashville in Rural Hill. Yes. Got that right. There's no S on the end. And so we're very excited to have Josh and Tina with us this morning. Thank you for being here today. And uh, let me pray over you and then bring the word. Gotta thank you so much for Josh. I thank you for the calling that you have on his life. I thank you for the way that you have gifted him and that you've equipped him. And I thank you for the way that he has a heart uh, for you, uh, for Jesus, and for serving your church. And uh, I thank you that he is willing to serve this morning, and we're grateful that he's here today. And we pray that you'd fill him with your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Good morning. It's good to be here. It is hot here in Austin. It reminded me, it was like, this is why I had to get out of here. Like, it is, how do y'all do this? Like, I, I get it. This is why you're here on Sunday, because you're like, I got to go to heaven. There's no way I can do this, right? It, it is, like, it is ungodly around this heat. Like, it was 930 last night. It was still 96. I'm like, what, what do you do? So grateful to be here. So thankful. My wife and I, we got in yesterday. Uh, and of course, we did what everybody does when you get to Austin. You go to Torchy's. So we did that, of course, uh, and then we attempted to walk around the domain, but I almost had a heat stroke and I was like, I can't do this. So we took some pictures to send back that we said we at least went to do some things. Uh, took a nap, got up in the evening, was like, it'd be cooler, and it wasn't. Uh, so we trudged out to go get some food. Uh, we ate a great restaurant, but our time here has been remarkable. So thank you guys for allowing us to be here. This morning, our text will come from 1 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 6. And if you would, stand with me as we read the word of God. The text says, When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but it seems these last couple years have been a very anxious two years. There's been so much going on in our world, so much in our everyday life, and not to say that COVID was to blame for, but I think COVID accelerated some things. And I think that when we see in this text as a leader who's gripped by fear and paranoia, and unfortunately, I believe that many of us might be as well. That fear has begun to dominate not just the way that we interact with each other, but everything about our very being. Whether it's what we see on TV, what we hear in podcasts, the things that we read, all the scrolling that we do on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or whatever other medium that we see, there's always something going on that seems to grab our attention, and rarely is it good news. And rarely does it cause a better disposition. And here in this text, we find Saul, who has just been crowned king, king of all of Israel. And the text tells us before this part that Saul is not king because he's the most competent leader. Saul is not king because he knows better than everybody else. But instead, Saul becomes king simply because he's handsome and he's taller than everybody else. Shocking that we put people in leadership positions who have no qualifications. But here we find that Saul is king anyhow. And God says to Samuel the prophet to tell Saul that, Saul, if you just listen to me, you will do well as king. Well, Saul starts out on a good path. And then we find that here they are about to go into battle with one of their great rivals, the Philistines. And Saul's job is to wait on the prophet Samuel to provide the sacrifices unto God before they go into battle. And as Saul and his men are waiting... The men see the Philistines gathering. The text tells us that they have 3,000 chariots, these legions of people getting ready to descend on them. And all the men are looking at Saul, waiting for his command. And out in the distance, they see the Philistines assembling. And they begin to move forward. And so the text tells us that we read that some of them begin to desert. They flee. They go to different places. They begin to hide. And the ones who were in the exact spot where Saul is, they began to look at Saul and they're grumbling and they're murmuring like, what are we about to do, Saul? What's happening? And so Saul takes on the responsibility that was not given to him to actually provide the sacrifice, only to find out after he does so, Samuel shows up on the scene, the one he was waiting for. And the first thing that Samuel asked Saul when he shows up in the text is, why did you do this? Saul, why did you perform the sacrifice that you weren't called to perform? I told you to wait and to be patient and let me come so that you would see deliverance. And Saul, like many of us probably would have done, he begins to make excuses. He says, Samuel, you weren't here. Samuel, all the people around were looking for me to do something and they were getting worried and concerned and they were becoming paranoid and so I had to do something. And Samuel says, yes, you had to do something. You were supposed to wait on me. And I love this text because I think this text sets a framework for where our lives might be today. 
Because Saul experiences quite a few things in his paranoia and fear because they come from a source that I think if we're honest, some of us might relate with. In one instance, it comes from what people say and what people think. What people say about Saul and what people seem to think about him as a leader causes him to be fearful and paranoid in many cases. It causes him great anxiety and even some depression later on in life. Because of what people think about him and what people say about him, Saul no longer is an effective leader, but a reactionary one. Saul responds to everything going around him and he's no longer able to hold on to himself. Anybody know what that's like or you know some people like that? That regardless of what's going on, it seems like their life is always on 100. And you was like, man, it's first thing in the morning. Chill out, calm down. Anytime there's a disagreement, even if you're talking calmly and level-headedly to them, they seem to just ratchet up the thermostat to beyond what this allows for a decent communication process because they're always on high alert and they're always in a fear-based situation. That you can't ask them about their day or you can't even have a civil conversation with them because everything is negative all the time. And so you treat those individuals kind of like Tylenol, right? No more than two of these every four to six hours. You keep breaks and sometimes you see them and you go the other way because you don't want to deal with their anxiety and all the things going on with them. And what we find in this text is that this is Saul's lifestyle. And because this is his disposition as a lifestyle, that everything people say and how people think about him and what he imagines people feel about him causes him to be so reactive in life. God says to Saul, I can't have you lead my people. Because every time things get difficult or things get tough, Saul, you lose control of yourself. You don't know how to hold on to yourself and be a sane person and actually make calm, rational decisions. Every time something gets out of control, Saul, you add to the problem instead of being a solution to the problem. And I want to say to us this morning that the church needs to be the calm place for a world of chaos. For too long, when things get tense and things and the pressure begins to rise, we've actually risen with the pressure instead of being the people who call them back to hope and to peace. We have to be the stabilizing factor in a world that's always tense and that's always in a state of fear. When the church buys into fear, we no longer have the ability to call people to hope. These last few years, so much has happened. And if you've been in ministry, elders, ministry leaders, volunteers, God bless you. Because it's been challenging. Even when we try to make the best decision with the best information possible. People that you never would have thought would say certain things that they ended up saying or doing things that they would have ended up doing. I got to the church that I serve at now at the beginning of 2020. I started January 1st, 2020. Three months in, we shut down completely. And our leadership made the decision to shut down because, like everybody else it appears, we thought we were doing the right thing. And you would have thought that for some people, we got rid of Jesus. Seriously. And it wasn't that our leadership was trying to be negative. They just thought they were doing what was best for people. They prayed about it. They sought the wisdom of God. And for safety measures, they thought this was the best thing, that we will go completely virtual, we'll go fully online. And we were doing this out of response of trying to do what was best as we believed. But we got comments from all sides. Everybody started sending us articles as if they were medical professionals. 
And then when we started back meeting, we asked people to wear a mask and a social distance. And some people thought one thing, other people thought another thing. And some of our elders were like, what do we do? We can't make these people happy. And something had to happen because every time we made a choice or we made a decision, we felt ourselves making another decision and another choice right after that. We had gotten into the mode of Saul where everything was reactionary and we were no longer being a proactive presence among our members. But not only that, things that members said to us. Some of our elders were there for the birth of their children and for they had walked through death with some of those families and they had been there to care for them in some of their most difficult and challenging seasons of their lives. And yet, just on one decision that they thought was the best for God, people threw up their hands and walked away. And I had to watch the leadership in their hurt and in their agony and in their pain to do what they thought was the best for all and to see people who were living in paranoia and fear respond to such. I don't know if that happened at Westover, but that was my context. And so as we were going through that season, we began to realize that we can't be that anxious presence with a group of anxious people. We have to communicate better, but at the same time, we have to be committed to Jesus, recognizing that not everybody's going to agree with the decisions we make. Not everybody's going to like it. And at the end of the day, our job is not to make everybody happy. Our job is to be faithful. And so we can't make decisions based on what people might say or what people might do. We have to make choices and decisions for all of these people based on what Jesus is telling us. Now, that didn't make it easier. But what it did do is it gave us confidence to make those decisions and to recognize that not everybody was going to live with them. But see, Saul here, when the people began to murmur and they began to ask questions and they began to run away, Saul sees what's happening and Saul tries to make the people calm. And Samuel says, but Saul, that's not what I asked you to do. That's not what God is requiring of you. Saul, what we need you to do is to be the person who's at peace in the midst of chaos. You need to be able to hold on to yourself, Saul. Even when the other people abandon you and they forsake you, Saul, you have to still be king. And you can't run off this way and try to appease these people, then run back this way and appease these people. Saul, if you do that, then you actually lose your presence as being a good leader. Because people find out really quickly that if I go talk to this person, then I can get them on my side. And then if I go talk to that person, I can actually split them away from each other. Not to say that people do that, because we triangle people all the time. And this is Saul's life as a leader. He's running back and forth, trying to make everybody happy, trying to make sure people say good things about him. And it ends up destroying Saul. It costs him his kingdom. Later on, as David begins to arise to power, Saul recognizes that he's losing status. Anybody ever been there? I don't know what happened, but something happens at the age of 30 that nobody told me. That my body just starts shutting down. I, I, for those of you who haven't hit there yet, just wait. I used to be able to go play all day, run, jump, play basketball to two in the morning, wake up and just keep going. Something happened at 30 where I just, I get why people pray in the morning. Because you just got to pray for your knees to work. Like you just, <laughs> does anybody else just like roll over and then you just like move your legs with your hands or is it? Something happened at 30. I don't know what, I don't remember what I did at 29 the day before, but at 30, my body was just like, we're done. That's just, and they didn't give me a warning. 
But Saul recognizes that he's not the great warrior he used to be. His eyesight is not what it once was. His reflexes can't do all that they used to do. And he sees this young David who's ascending in status. And Saul remembers his glory days. Some of us remember our good old days, our glory days when we had all the energy, all the vitality, all of our faculties worked 100%. And as those things begin to fail and as they begin to wane, Saul looks at David and he thinks David is his problem. Instead of realizing that Saul, this is just called aging. But Saul doesn't recognize that that's just what's happening to him. He sees David as a threat. And so Saul takes up the remainder of his years fighting a battle that he can't win. Because he's pursuing David who's rising in power and Saul's beginning to decline in power. And sooner or later, let me tell you, in case you haven't realized it, it will happen to all of us. You will only be the greatest at whatever you do until somebody else arises and ascends to be greater at it. Sooner or later, just about every record gets broken. Sooner or later, everything that we do, somebody will do it better. Sooner or later, the things that we thought we were professionals at or that we were experts at, somebody else will ascend beyond us. And if I'm holding on to my position or I find my substance or I believe that this is what makes me who I am when I can no longer do it at the level I once did, if that's the thing that's going to tear me apart, then I need to find my identity in something else. And Saul can't do that. Saul is this anxious presence all the time. Whether it's what people are saying and what they think or whether it's because he's seeing somebody else ascend the heights greater than he was able to bow down to. And so Saul's life is a life riddled with fear and paranoia. Anybody living that life right now? That everything is always bad. It doesn't seem like there's anything good. I look at Saul's life and it kind of bothers me. Because you would think that being king, it should be a good life, right? If you were going to pick a life to have, you'd be like the king. That would be the position you'd start with. Because they have everything. Saul's position as king is a life of misery. Because it's all fear and paranoia and anxiety. And I love how the Bible plays this out. Because what they do in the Gospel of John as he writes his Gospel, he redeems this idea of being a king through the person of Jesus. Jesus is surrounded in a very similar situation as Saul where people are anxious and fearful about everything all the time. If you haven't read the Gospel of John lately, I would very highly recommend you read it. Because you see that every circumstance is a circumstance where they're putting Jesus to the test and he's in all these high pressure situations. Whether it's the woman at the well, the woman that's caught in the midst of adultery, the situation with Lazarus as he's dead. There's so many situations where the anxiety and the pressure from everybody else around Jesus just happens to show up in the moment and everybody wants Jesus to respond immediately. And in every circumstance, even when the wind is blowing on the sea and they're getting really afraid because they don't know what's going to happen and they get fearful, Jesus is never reactionary. I'll need you to think about that, church. Jesus is never a reactionary leader. Even when everybody else cries out and everybody else is afraid and everybody else is completely fearful, Jesus is so calm, cool, and collected that it's almost problematic just reading it. Because they're like, Jesus, don't you see the stress in my voice? Don't you hear the stress in my voice? See the anxiety in how I'm living? And Jesus is like, it's okay. Jesus seems like a hippie in the midst of all this anxiety. But the reality is, 
Jesus is trying to teach a group of people who live with all the time anxiety that this is what it means to be a follower of God. That, yeah, the world is going to spiral in whichever direction it so chooses. Yes, there are always going to be things that are pressing against us. There's always going to be one problem after another. There's going to be one situation after another. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be calamity. There's going to be chaos. But that does not mean that you need to lose yourself just because it's going on. And if you hold on to Jesus, you can hold on to yourself and you can hold on to peace. And so this morning, I want to offer what Jesus offers all of us. Some peace. Does anybody need a little peace this morning? Does anybody need some peace from the everlasting rat race that is our lives? Does anybody just need a moment to take a break and a moment of rest from everything that's going on in the world around us? Does anybody just need a moment to turn off the TV, to shut off the noise, just to have a little bit of rest from all the anxiety and fear-producing media that we find ourselves inundated with all the time? Well, then how about we look to Jesus? The one who's able to hold on to himself, but also who's able to hold on to us. See, when we began to hold on to ourselves, when we learned to be self-differentiated, then I realized that just because everything is going crazy in your your life doesn't mean I need to take that on. And I had to learn this in pastoral ministry. And I'm sure those of you in ministry, you realize this. That there are times when people would run up to me after a sermon, and hopefully this doesn't happen to you, Luke. Nobody ever runs up to you and complains about what you said. Or even worse, they run up to the elders and tell them what they thought you said that you didn't say, and they expect the elder to come tell you what their problem was. That doesn't happen here. That's just... (laughs) But in that anxiety, when people run up to you, in the moment, they want you to fix whatever the problem is. And so they believe that me coming up to you and throwing it at your feet, they've done their due diligence. I've relayed to you the issue. Now make me happy. And when I was a young minister, I would try to do that. And here was the problem. Because I didn't know it was a problem. That once you start doing it, that becomes the new normal. Some of you have children, you know, if you let them get away with a little bit, that's not a one-time thing. That's the new lifestyle. You have now set the new precedent that this is just how it is. You give them ice cream for breakfast on Wednesday. They want ice cream and cake on Thursday. And they're going to remind you, you let me do this just yesterday. So the way to stop that from happening is to never let it happen in the first place. Because now that you've set the precedent, they believe that's the new standard. And so in ministry, I had set this standard that I didn't know I had set for people That if you run up to me afterward, that I'll get up and apologize the next week and let you know that I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. Well, after a while, the first 20 minutes of every sermon is apologizing to everybody else who had a problem for everything. And it was like, when are we going to actually get to preaching the gospel? I don't know when these people quit coming up to me. And somebody had to sit me down and tell me that it's not my job to deal with all of their anxiety. You can't be an effective leader. If every time somebody has an issue, you respond and take on their issue. You're not helping them. You're actually enabling them. And I felt so bad because I thought that I was doing the right thing. In ministry, you have a heart for people. You care about people. You never want to hurt people. You don't want to see people upset and frustrated. You want to make them smile and give them joy and happiness. 
And what this person had to let me know is, you're not Jesus. That's not your job. What you have to do is listen to them and then give them a pathway to walk forward with God, not you holding their hand and pulling them forward. But I wasn't ready to hear that. I wasn't okay listening to that. But it wasn't until I began to realize and to practice that, that it did something for me. It actually allowed me to be a better person. Because for a while, their ministry was all-consuming in my life. I'd answer the phone 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, every night. Everybody who had an issue, I would take their call or meet with them. Everybody who wanted to talk about whatever else was going on and whatever person upset them and whatever leader had done something they didn't like, I was always available and always accessible. And it took a toll on me personally, my health, my mental, emotional health. It took a toll on my marriage. It took a toll on every aspect of my being. And this information, this advice saved my life. Because what it taught me was my job is to point people to Jesus and not be Jesus. And so I want to give us this good news, this really good news. That Jesus is the one who gives us peace and gives us hope. And so our job as the church is to point people to Jesus and to that hope. And one of the best things we can do is to not be an anxiety presence in the midst of people who are already dealing with such anxiety and not take on their anxiety or their fear or their paranoia. Because if we do that, then we become a lot more like Saul than we do Jesus. And there's a great cost to leaders who lead from a reactionary place. If you read the end of this text, of what happens in 1 Samuel 13. The end result of Saul's anxiety-ridden leadership is that God finally tells Saul that I can't have you lead anymore. Because Saul, you're too anxious as a leader. You don't know how to hold on to yourself in the midst of what's going on. He says, so your kingdom, Saul, will end with you. Your kingdom, Saul, will have one king in the lineage, just you. I'm going to raise up another who won't be so anxious, who won't be so fearing. Saul costs a lot of people a lot of things. And unfortunately, we as the church owe the world better. We have to do better for a world that's filled and riddled with anxiety and fear. We owe them better. We can't be the anxious presence in the rest of this world. We can't always be making fear-based decisions and tossed to and fro by whatever we see and whatever's going on. If anybody's going to hold on to themselves, it needs to be the church. We can't tell people that we offer you hope and peace if they don't see it in our own lives. But we can hold on to ourselves as long as we hold on to Jesus. Pray with me this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
God bless you.